right. Have we got um, volume? There we go. How's that? Morning, friends. Good to see you all this morning. Thank you, Mike uh, and team, for leading us. Um, we are in Matthew's Gospel in our second last message from the Gospel in our tour through Matthew's Gospel. It's taken us two years. So we're in Matthew 27, um, in verse, uh, going from verse 62 into Matthew 28, verse 15. So let me read it for you, then we'll get into the message. The next day, the, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I'll rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he's been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate said, go and make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord had come down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you'll see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You're to say his disciples had come during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Our, our family have had some serious Monopoly games in our time. I don't know about you, but uh, we've had times when, uh, some holidays, when the Monopoly game would go on for days and days and days and the board would be on the coffee table or the dining table and it would just be um, open and all of the money and the little tokens and the cards and everything would just be there and Monopoly is just like the game that never ends, isn't it? It just, you get into these cycles and it just keeps on going. Well, there's a bit of luck needed for success in Monopoly, um, but you also need to have a strategy. You need to decide whether you're going to do some things like invest in railway stations and utilities for cash flow or just leave them. And you need to decide if you're going to buy everything and anything whenever it comes up or perhaps invest in a series of colours along perhaps a straight so you can build a horror strip for your opponents to have to travel through. 
And you have to work out how much money, how much cash you should actually keep in reserve for whenever you have to pay for rent. Um, or perhaps your strategy might be simply to just try for Mayfair and Park Lane and just bankrupt your opponent with a couple of lucky rolls. Well, whether it's Monopoly or whether it's chess or whether it's any other board game, the mark of a good player is the ability to implement a strategy and anticipate the opponent's moves before they actually happen. So your strategy brings you success. And more or less, hold that because that's what's going on here in the way Matthew has written this section of, his passage, of this passage. We have been located for several weeks, a couple of months now, um, in the events of Jesus' trumped-up trial and what happened at Calvary for, for quite a while. The narrative has been moving in this direction for a long time now as we've journeyed through chapters 26, 27 and now we enter into chapter 28. Here are some of the things that Matthew has taken us through. We've learned about the plot against Jesus. We've learned about Jesus' anointing by the woman with an alabaster bar, a jar of perfume, that ridiculously expensive perfume that was actually anointing him for what was coming. Jesus agree, uh, Judas agreeing to betray Jesus. The Last Supper where Judas was finally exposed. Jesus predicting Peter's denial. The failure of Peter and James and John at Gethsemane while Jesus wept. We've looked at Jesus' arrest because of Judas's final betrayal. We've looked at the fake trial before the Sanhedrin. We've looked at Peter disowning Jesus three times before the rooster crowed. I don't know why they say the roosters crow. Surely crows crow. What the rooster's rooster? It always seems. I'm always puzzled about that. But we've learned about that. That Jesus had predicted it, and then it happened. We've, uh, Matthew then took us through Judas's sad demise. Um, Jesus before Pilate and Pilate's attempt to excuse him and Pilate's wife's terrors in that scene. We've looked at the soldiers mocking Jesus as their humil humiliation pantomime began for the innocent but condemned man. And then we moved into the crucifixion at Gethsemane and the death of Jesus on the cross and the burial of Jesus in Joseph of Arimathea's unused tomb. That's what we've been through, a tremendous amount of detail. Matthew's been careful and precise to outline exactly what happened. It was the Archbishop Stephen Langdon, the Archbishop of Canterbury, who in 1227 first assigned chapters and verses to the Bible. So sections, he did it so sections could easily be found. The good Archbishop must have struggled and debated about what to do here in Matthew. Typically, on the way through Matthew, the chapters are about 40 or 30 verses, 30 or 40 verses um, long. But here in chapters 26 and 27, Matthew has crammed so much detail in that we have two chapters. One is 75 verses long and the next one is 66 verses long. Matthew has been so careful to make sure that all of this is included because the detail and the content that Matthew put into these events about what happened at the cross was paramount. The cross is the central and defining symbol of the Christian faith. Many devout people wear a cross as a symbol of their devotion um, and, and statement of their priorities in life. Other people wear a cross 
as a shiny, even expensive piece of jewellery or perhaps they don't even fully appreciate that the symbol they're wearing is actually an instrument of torture and execution. Nevertheless, I suspect they wear it because they perceive that there is something mystical and symbolic and important in that symbol. The cross is what makes the Christian faith and more particularly Jesus Christ so very different to other faiths and creeds and religions and philosophies and founders of religions. Jesus did not come only as a wise person or a teacher, though he did that. Jesus did not come only as a miracle worker and deliverer, though he did that. Jesus did not only come as a servant, though he was that. Jesus did not only come as one who freed the oppressed, though he did that. Jesus did not only come as one who challenged the powerful and religious leaders, though he did that. Jesus did not only come as one who treated all people as equal, though he did that, regardless of gender, status, sin, sexuality or occupation. Jesus did not come only as a sage or a giant of prayer and, 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 and leader of the inner life, though he did that. Jesus did not only come as a reformer of the law, though he did that. And Jesus did not only come as a king or messiah to inaugurate his kingdom on earth, though he also certainly did that. Jesus came as something or someone else. Jesus came as the sacrificial lamb for the sin of humanity that had permanently created a chasm in the relationship that had been set in place in creation but had been broken by the actions of humanity, by people. Something was needed to create a bridge across this chasm, to make a bridge possible so that humans, we, you, me, could once again enter the presence and enjoy relationship with the living God. According to Jewish law, indeed, all of the whole mindset of all the ancient Middle Eastern thought and religions, whichever one it was of that day, a sacrifice was needed, a game changer. Blood needed to be shed. And as we've been describing, these events on the cross occurred during the Passover festival in Jerusalem. So don't miss the significance of what Matthew is now describing. The Passover lamb was the animal God directed the Israelites to use as a sacrifice right back in Egypt. On the night, God struck down the firstborn sons of every household. Remember, they were wanting Pharaoh to let God's people go free, and he wouldn't, and so God kept sending these plagues. There were ten plagues, and this was the final plague that God issued against Pharaoh, who seemed determined not to let the people of God go free from slavery. And it was the blood shed from this sacrificial lamb that finally led Pharaoh to releasing his slaves, the Israelites, from slavery. And after that faithful night, God instructed the Israelites to observe the Passover feast as a lasting memorial, which was why many Jews, like Simon from Cyrene, who just recently we read about carrying the crossbar of the cross for Jesus, People like that were gathering in Jerusalem for this festival, the Passover. Moses recorded in Exodus 12, 14, 
This is a day that you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. And they did. At the original Passover, God instructed every household of Israelite people to select a year-old male lamb without defect. The head of the house, a bit gory, that's the way they did things back then. The head of the household was to slaughter the lamb at twilight, taking care that none of its bones were broken and apply some of its blood to the tops and sides of the door frame to the house. God said that when he saw the lamb's blood on the door frame of the house, he would pass over that home and not permit the destroyer to enter. Exodus 12, 23 to 25 says, When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the door frame and will pass over that doorway. And he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as promised, observe this ceremony. And accordingly, the Israelites were freed from slavery. We know the story from Exodus. The cross establishes a relationship between this prototypical Passover lamb and the consummate Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 5.7, Paul says, Get rid of our old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. John the Baptist recognised Jesus as the lamb of God in John 1.29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The apostle Peter linked the lamb without defect in Exodus 12.5 with Jesus, who he calls a lamb without blemish or defect. In 1 Peter 1.18, Peter says, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Jesus was qualified to be called one without blemish because his life was completely free from sin. The writer to the Hebrews was careful to add this, for we do not have a high priest who was unable to empathise with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. As the first Passover marked the Hebrews' release from Egyptian slavery, so the death of Christ on the cross marks our release from the slavery of sin. Romans 8, 1-3 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. As the first Passover was to be held in remembrance of an annual feast, so we Christians are to memorialise the Lord's death by doing what we did today, by gathering around the table and partaking in the bread and the juice as symbols of what the perfect Lamb of God shed for us. 
That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.26, in words we often hear when communion is celebrated, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Old Testament Passover lamb, although a reality at the time, was actually a mere foreshadowing of the better and final Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. Through his, sinful, sorry, through his sinless life and his sacrificial death, Jesus became the only one capable of giving people a way to escape death and a sure hope of eternal life. Amen. And yet with what I've just explained, it, the immense theology, the meaning, the weight, the gravitas of all that we've just gone through, and yet with what I've just explained about all that was achieved by the cross, at the cross, by the spotless Lamb, Jesus Christ, our narrative does not end there. For to stop at the cross, while horrifying and magnificent in its scope and achievement, would be insufficient. To stop at the cross, effectively to stop at Matthew chapter 27, verse 61 and say that's the end of the story. To stop there with Jesus dead and buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb would be disloyal to Matthew's gospel account and disloyal to the story of the rest of the New Testament because something else happened. Friends, we need to remember that as central as the cross is to our understanding of God's love for the world and preparedness to make a way of salvation open to all people, and as central as the cross is as a bridge that makes a way possible for fallen humans to have peace in the presence of a holy and perfect God, the project didn't end there. As amazing as this achievement was, and as good news as it is for you and me, that's not all that happened. Something else occurred that changed the course of human history. And we need to remember that what happened became the central truth that motivated the early church and spurred on Christian mission in its first centuries and for the 2,000 years since. It was not only that Jesus had been crucified and died. When Jesus taught his followers to pray, he taught them to ask for this. In Matthew 6.10, he said, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The cross was a beginning and an end. The final achievement of the sacrificial lamb and the beginning of the new age of Jesus' reign. Now this is where we get back to our Monopoly example that I started with this morning. Thinking of taking a few steps ahead of your opponent and having a strategy in place. Matthew knew that the story of the resurrection was so amazing and unbelievable that he was very careful, he was very particular to include a number of facts to dispel any attempts to minimise it or to deny it. He's very careful to describe exactly what happened. Verse 62 to 66 say, The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, the deceiver said, After three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he's been raised from the dead. 
this last deception will be worse from the, than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go and make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting guard, a guard. The officials at the highest level reporting up to Governor Pilate himself had heard rumours of this possibility of resurrection. Of course, they assumed that it wouldn't be um, real except they knew that Jesus' closest followers might steal the body and then they could start a rumour campaign, it's the way politicians and people think. It's possible that they could steal the body and then start a rumour campaign and say that Jesus was resurrected and that could become a movement. So now that Jesus was dead and buried, they needed to make sure also that the movement of Jesus' followers was dead and buried. So the first thing that we should note here is that Joseph of Arimathea's tomb was new. A simple three-letter word that you might skip over. Now, excuse me, the next 30 seconds are a bit unpleasant if you don't like stories about graves and things, so block your ears and go la-la-la and just relax, but this is just important for some context. Um, traditional Israelite burial customs required that bodies were stored in tombs or caves and sometimes even under the family home, if you like that. The body wasn't put in a coffin and cremated like we do these days, but it was wrapped in burial cloths along with perfumes and spices. And the body would then be put on a ledge alongside of other bodies um, and left to decompose. And when that had occurred, the bones would be put into a box called an ossuary. Now in this scene, Matthew's really clear and careful to state that the tomb was new. Verses 59 and 60 say, Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and placed it in his own new tomb that he'd cut out of the rock. He rolled a really big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Now this was a new tomb and there were no other bodies in it. Matthew wants no chance of mistake here. And grave robbery was common too. It was customary to have large rocks rolled in front of the grave so it couldn't be the body or any assets couldn't be robbed. And I mean large when I say a large rock. These rocks were up to two metres in diameter. But if that wasn't enough, verses 65, 66 describe what they also did. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go, make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. And sometimes I hear people say that Jesus didn't really die, that he was like seriously injured on the cross but not dead and, and, and somehow recovered. Now, now think about that, the audacity of that claim. The fact that Joseph requested the body from Pilate and Pilate granted that request demonstrates that the body was dead. A body was not removed from a crucifix until it was dead. Roman soldiers did not do those sorts of things in half measures. They were good at this stuff. And then it was put in a dark cave from Friday to Sunday, alone, without medication, assistance or resuscitation, and it's supposed to just walk out? A bit preposterous when people say that he was a bit injured and just somehow survived that. Matthew is clear that Jesus' main disciples actually were pretty well absent through the whole scene. So I don't know how they're supposed to be rendering assistance when they're actually running away and hiding through the whole process. They were in no position to actually steal Jesus' body. Matthew continues the narrative into chapter 28. 
After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. Always the women. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. The most famous and important words in history. He is not here. He is risen. Just as he said, Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you could read that passage again and again and again. The women were at the tomb on the Friday evening. Matthew says in chapter 27, 61, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb, mourning and filled with grief and hopelessness and despair. And they returned after dawn, the dawn after the Sabbath, on the, in chapter 28, verse 1, after Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, There they are again. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. Matthew left no confusion about the details of the burial. If you're going to doubt whether Jesus was raised from the dead, it must be because you doubt the living God could or would do such a thing for Israel's Messiah, the Lamb of God, the one on whose shoulders rested the weight of the world's need. That is what was at stake in this scene. I've been careful to outline what was achieved on the cross this morning and what it means, especially in light of the Passover and our freedom from slavery, from the Lamb of God, sacrifice. But the resurrection started something more. Matthew records there was a violent earthquake in addition to the one that had happened on the Friday. That's two violent earthquakes over the weekend. An angel of the Lord appeared and rolled back a large stone and sat on it. He was brilliant and white and gleaming and brave Roman guards were afraid and shook like dead men. The angel announced to the women, Do not be afraid for I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. Matthew leaves us with two responses to this scene. And each of us make our decision, and each each person and, and, and society as a whole also makes its decision around which of the two responses to this incredible scene that we want to take. The first decision the first response we can make to what Matthew has presented here is to accept and tell the truth of what happened. The other response that we can make is to cover it up and call it fake news. They are the two responses that Matthew ends this section with. So the first thing, the the ones who accept what's happened here and they tell the truth about what's happened and they receive this message in all of its fullness, are the women. They hurry away from the tomb. Matthew says in verses 8 to 10. So the women hurried away from the tomb, 
afraid and yet filled with joy. You know that feeling of absolute terror. You've just seen an angel who said that your Lord is risen and yet he has. And they're filled with this terror and joy, afraid and yet filled with joy. And they ran to tell his disciples. And suddenly Jesus meets them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, they clasped his feet. You can only clasp someone's feet when you're on your knees. They're on the ground, they are amazed and they are in a prostrate, prostrate position of worship. Suddenly Jesus met them, greetings, he said, they came, they clasped his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid, go tell my brothers, go to Galilee, they will see me. The women became the first proclaimers of the resurrection. The women became the first ones to tell of the greatest event in human history and the inauguration of a new age of history. Make no mistake, the New Testament's first preachers of the resurrected Christ were the women of good news that Jesus was risen and they also were the first ones to meet the risen Lord. Their lives are changed and they receive joy and they share good news. Their message is that a new age has begun and they can't grasp it yet. We've had the death and now there is the resurrection. Their Lord who did so much and was crucified has now risen and his reign as the risen Lord has become. Jesus is Lord of Lords and King of Kings truly. And all the mockery that happened, the sign on his cross and the crown of thorns and the religious things that they did to Jesus from those Roman guards as they mocked him in that horrible pantomime are now turned on their head and death is resurrected and a new age begins under the reign of Jesus. But there is another response. So that's the first response we see from the women who go and tell the other followers of the incredible, magnificent good news and the hope and the, the meaning and, and the truth that resurrection can come after death and there is hope and there is new life and there is a new way and the least can become the greatest. And it's all turned on its head in that route. But there is another route here, another response that we can make. Let's read verses 11 to 15. And Matthew says, While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say, His disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated amongst the Jews to this very day. According to this route, this other option that we can take is the route of the chief priests and the elders. It's a method of denial and cover-up, of devising plans and lies and plans and lies and plans and lies to back up the plans and lies. It's a culture about burying the truth and the hope that comes with the truth. Large parts of our culture might think that it's an easier route to take 
the scientific route, etc. But it's actually the harder route to take. It requires endless energy and denial and activity like lies do, that need lies to back up the lies and more lies to back up those lies. And it delivers no peace or joy or hope. It never stops requiring negative energy and repression. It's like keeping a lid on a pressure cooker endlessly when you know it will eventually explode. We face these two options every day to accept the truth and the good news that comes with the acceptance and admission that Jesus Christ is Lord and is risen or we can deny it and the evidence that comes with it. Friends, the resurrection of the risen Messiah, Jesus Christ, was the beginning of God's new age for the world. A new age of spreading good news and fulfilling what Jesus announced was his mission, as Isaiah had promised. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to send me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. The message of the women. Hugh Schoenfield wrote a controversial book titled The Passover Plot several years ago. It was one of many of literature's attempts to explain away the events of the crucifixion and the resurrection. And like all other attempts of this nature, it relies on the ancient lies circulated from the original Resurrection Sunday by the soldiers who were paid to say that the friends of Jesus came and stole the body. The only problem with Schoenfield's argument and anyone else ever since who's joined the argument is that it's just impossible to explain how that thesis could have happened. John Singleton Copley was one of Britain's greatest legal minds. He was the High Chancellor three times. And simply, the best way to describe him is an expert of the generations in the law. He said this, in this humble British uh, attitude, you can hear it in his voice. He said, I know pretty well what evidence is. And I tell you, such evidence as that for the resurrection has never broken down yet. Friends, Today is Sunday. Sometimes it's called the Sabbath because it's the Christian's day of rest. But it's actually not the Sabbath. The Sabbath runs from dusk on Friday to dusk on Saturday. It's a Jewish practice. Indeed, it's a good one and was made for humans. But we take Sundays off. Increasingly, there are pressures upon how we use the Sabbath. Shops are open, sports run, galleries are open, and it can be overrun and become just like any other day. But Christians worship on Sundays. Indeed, the week starts, the whole week starts on a Sunday for Christians because Sunday is the day of resurrection. It was on a Sunday that Jesus rose from the grave and human history was changed forever. A new age, the reign of Jesus Christ as Lord of Lords and King of Kings began on a Sunday And we gather each Sunday here to worship the one who achieved this and is now seated on the throne in heaven. And each Sunday, we're reminded too that death and pain and loss and trial and hardship and suffering still happens. But that in Christ, resurrection, freedom and new life 
are not just possible. They happen. Because the resurrection proves that Jesus conquered death. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Loving God, this huge, huge, earth-shattering, epoch-creating, age-beginning story of the resurrection. Lord, there are two ways that we can handle it. We can join the um, distraction, the voices, the denial, the arguments, the rebuttals, the hopelessness, or we can join the women and what they witnessed and what they spoke of and whom they met. We gather here every Sunday to praise and worship you, the risen Christ, the risen Messiah, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. We, we do that because you made a way through the cross and your sacrifice, the perfect, unblemished, sacrificial lamb. You made a way, a bridge, where we could be in relationship with God. But not just that. You rose. After that had been achieved, you then rose and called us to join you in relationship and receive forgiveness of our sins and move forward in participating with you in the announcement of this incredible good news that Jesus is Lord and he has risen. Help us to forever, faithfully, worship you and practice this every week and every Sunday be reminded that you are the resurrected one of the universe, of the creation and of each of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Andrew. Before we sing our last song, I thought we'd do something a little bit different. I'd like you to, if you're comfortable, that is, um, just turn around and talk